And it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly, and it's the 7th Avenue Project. And on the show today, giving your all for science. We'll talk to historian Rebecca Herzig about a time when scientific research was literally to die for. Nowadays, the prevailing view seems to be that science can and should be fun. And while some of that may be propaganda aimed at science-averse kids, a lot of scientists would basically agree. For all the difficulties and hard work, doing science is really a kick. But it wasn't always so. Rebecca Herzig says that for a stretch of time in late 19th and early 20th century America, science was often synonymous with pain and sacrifice. Scientists were expected to lay down life and limb in the pursuit of knowledge, and many did. But was it really necessary, or was this a bunch of guys caught up in their own drama of manly valor and martyrdom? Well, Rebecca Herzig confronts that question in her book, Suffering for Science, Reason and Sacrifice in Modern America. And when she says suffering, she really means it. Just listen to these examples she gave me. X-ray researchers who hold their hands underneath the ray as long as they can to see what the long-term effects of X-radiation would be and so forth. So this man gathered a lot of black vomit from people who were dying from yellow fever and then began testing it um, on himself. And he sniffed it. He ate the vomit. He sliced open his arm, put some vomit in the arm, and sutured it. He would often go under an amputation to have another part of a finger, another part of his hand taken off, and then wake up from the ether and literally run down the hall back into the lab and stick his hands back under the x-ray and continue his research. Um, And so to test this, they captured a bunch of mosquitoes. They, They fed them on the skin of people who were known to be infected with yellow fever, and then put the same mosquitoes on themselves to deliberately let the mosquitoes bite them. And these deaths from yellow fever, they prided themselves on giving up as much as they could, their relationships, their health. When they'd start to starve because they skipped so many meals, they would sort of pat one another on the back for that kind of thing. Um, Well, Rebecca Herzig, welcome. Thank you, Robert. It's great to be here. These few instances you just told mm-hmm. me about, these were not exceptional. No. This, this was quite common? No, quite common. And what's interesting was that this language of sacrifice does show up just everywhere after about 1875. It's in all kinds of published scientific reports. It does show up in some lab notebooks. Um, it's in letters scientists are writing back and forth to one another. It's in their request for funding, not just scientists' presentations to their public, because we can imagine you always want to present yourself in the in the best, most heroic light, but also in their presentations to one another, in their self-reflections, and in, in these kinds of things. Um, and it's always this idea of, of sacrificing oneself to this thing, science. Um, that's the cause the of cause science. The cause of science, yes. You write of scientists' sunken eyes, emaciated bellies, and bloody stumps. <laughs> they sound like um, war veterans. I mean, if we went to a scientific meeting in this era, would we see a lot of guys limping around on crutches? And I, I don't think so. I th- what they remind me of even more than war veterans, although this was happening close enough to the conclusion of the Civil War that this was certainly in their minds as they're talking about sacrifice and blood and violence and so on. They remind me almost as much as the early Christian ascetics, you know, all those people creeping out into the desert to beat themselves with nettles and... and uh, drink pus and things like that to show their devotion to God. The first generation of scientists in this country, most of them trained for the seminary before they switched and went into chemistry or physics or electrical research or whatever it was they ended up doing. Many of them you know, studied very intensely um, for a number of years, and they adapted that language of Christian sacrifice, of martyrology, of all these things, right into their, right into their research. Yeah, the word we use today for for science is discipline. Yes. And that's a religious term exactly. too, isn't it? It comes from disciple. Yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah. And what's interesting is that this language of sacrifice does show up just everywhere after about 1875. It's in all kinds of published scientific reports. It does show up in some lab notebooks. Um, it's in letters scientists are writing back and forth to one another. It's in their requests for funding. Um, it's, in, it's in all kinds of different presentations, not just scientists' presentations to their public, because we can imagine you always want to present yourself in the 
in the best, most heroic light, but also in their presentations to one another and their self-reflections and, and these kinds of things. Um, and it's always this idea of, of sacrificing oneself to this thing, science. Um, that's the cause the of cause science. The cause of science, yeah. Yeah, what sort of language did they use to describe this notion of uh, self-sacrifice? Uh, it was explicitly religious. I mean, they used language of, well, sacrifice itself, you know, comes from this idea of the sacred. Um, but also a language of devotion, uh, of enthusiasm, of these things come out of religious traditions. And um, the founding journals, the journals we still think of and esteem as the most important scientific journals in the country, the journal Science, founded in 1883, for instance, its opening editorial, its first editorial, um, said that um, higher than all, science must be devoted to the truth. It must cheerfully undertake the severest labor to secure it and must deem no sacrifice too great in order to preserve it. Um, and there's a lot of things that are interesting about that um, Partly it isn't just that you have to suffer and you have to go through labor and you have to do all these kinds of things, but that you're supposed to do this cheerfully, um, enthusiastically, um, voluntarily, uh, gleefully even. And sometimes people would talk about the, the joy of being able to sacrifice yourself for science. Was science special in this regard? I mean, uh, there was the background that you just cited in, in, in Christian religion, and many religions have a notion of sacrifice, maybe all of them, you know, I mean whether it's Buddhist monks, you know, subjecting right. themselves to asceticism or Abraham's sacrifice in the Old Testament and, you know, other forms of deprivation. Um, and then there is the the general cultural idea, no pain, no gain. Exactly. I exactly. mean, which exists to this day. Was science special in some way? I think how it was special is that at the moment we're talking about, you know, at the moment it's really acquiring some power um, in American culture. It was also acquiring the ability to tell us what was true about the world. Um, so that uh, even at the same time, you're getting these scientists who are adapting the Christian ideas, just like a lot of other people were. Missionaries were using the same language. Businessmen were using the same language. Scientists, more than those other people, were getting to tell us what appropriate kinds of suffering was. So here's an example. Um, masochism, the disease known as masochism, which is now an identified psychological disorder and can be treated with various kinds of psychological therapy or drug regimens and so on, was first categorized at this time in the late 19th century um, as a pathology, as a sick kind of love for suffering. Well, what's interesting is it's being named by scientists as a sick kind of suffering at the same moment that they're having their hands amputated because they're, you know, they can't put down their research as they're staying up all night in the lab, as they're breaking into buildings so that they continue with their research after after hours, these kinds of things. So I find that um, that both of those things going on at once is what makes science kind of unusual in that respect. So, Yeah, interesting to hear them say, now that guy over there is a masochist <laughs> as they continue to um, flog themselves. Yes. Now, you're interested in this particular period, the, the late 19th century, but hadn't science always demanded some kind of, uh, at least in its own mythology, some kind of sacrifice? I mean, going back to Galileo, who was persecuted by the church, and many others who were as well. Some some were burned at the stake for heresy. Uh, well, if you think about it, even the way you ask the question, hasn't science always demanded this? What I got interested in is when did we start saying that science demands anything, right? Like, what is this thing, science? It's not a person. It's not even an identifiable institution, right? So how could it be that there's this uh, power that forces us to do things, that compels us to suffer? Um, and when did people first start saying that? And I was ready to think that people had been saying this since Galileo's age, right? This I'd heard all the same Science stories. Science with a capital Science S. Science with a capital S. And what I found when I looked is that this idea that science makes demands on us that we can't reject, um, or that we can if we don't want to be scientists, if we're not up to it, um, is very, very new. I mean, in these historical terms, it's only about 100 years old, a little bit more. Um, and that prior to that, sure, people were doing all kinds of difficult work. Um, and many people were were running into political trouble when they said things that the powers that be didn't like. But they were never talking about it in terms of uh, science demanded that I do this, or I'm doing this in the name of science. I was really interested in, in reading your book to hear that this idea of science as a movement, as a cause, as a calling right. is so recent, and that the word scientist itself, as far as we know, 
was coined in 1834. Yes. There was no term scientist. There was no term scientist. There were physicists. There were chemists. There were metallurgists. There were... Natural philosophers. Natural philosophers, yep. but there were no scientists. Yep. And what's interesting is that term was developed in 1834 by uh, an Englishman who who understood that something new was happening. A new kind of person was being created, and we might want a word for this. And it, the word just didn't pick take on. Um, everyone thought, that's what a hideous, awkward word, in the same way we do now when we make up some word. Um, and in fact, as late as the 1870s, when it was being used in the U.S., um, then some some writers in England would describe it as an American barbarism, as something only these unschooled, uncouth uh, Americans would would use, this made-up word, uh, scientist. Um, and I think what happens is this person, the scientist, and this thing, science, this imagined thing, science, come into being at the same time. In the same way you can't really have a new god unless you have a set of people who believe in the new god, the same sort of relationship started happening between this new person, this new category of person, the scientist, and this new thing, science with a capital S. And this is the Seventh Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, we're talking about a time when science was not for the faint-hearted. My guest is the historian Rebecca Herzig, author of Suffering for Science, Reason and Sacrifice in Modern America. She describes a period a hundred years ago when scientists took on the aura of suffering heroes, giving their last full measure of devotion for the advance of knowledge. And if you have any doubts about that, consider this newspaper editorial from 1895 from the chemist E.E. E. Slauson. Here's me giving my best dramatic reading, and then back to the interview. If the pages of a textbook were marked like alpine passes with a cross at every point, where someone has sacrificed his life, we could see how scientists have valued the knowledge which we, perhaps, do not care to learn. The martyrs of science are not less numerous than those of religion, nor are they less glorious since they died in the same cause, the pursuit or the promulgation of ideal truth. It must not be supposed that instances of self-immolation on the altar of science are rare. On the contrary, they are of daily occurrence. A biologist who wishes to study the life history of the tapeworm grows one in his own body. A physician ruins his health by experimenting on processes of digestion in his own stomach. A geographer risks his life to get a barometric reading. A bacteriologist inoculates himself only too successfully with a disease germ. A sanitarian, in order to test the effects of decomposed organic matter on the human system, drinks sewer water for a month. A chemist works for years on a compound so explosive that the careless touching of a few grains would kill him. Such are the common events in the scientific world. No investigation is given up because it is dangerous. There are scientists in almost all lines who work day after day, quietly and doggedly, in more danger of their lives than a soldier in wartime. The outside world knows nothing of this, and if it did, would laugh at them as madmen. What's terrific about that is he's saying, look, this isn't just one branch of science. This isn't just uh, people working in labs injecting themselves with things. Or He's saying what unites science, what brings all these disparate activities together, is that they all care more about the advancement of human knowledge than they do about the saving of human life. They're not doing this in order to make the world a better place for people. They're doing it for knowledge themselves. Well, this is what came to be known as pure science, the the pure pursuit of knowledge separate from any applications, inventions, any practical uses of it. And this was something that a number of people were extolling at the time. You know, go for pure science. Don't heed the call to make money off of it. Knowledge is the altar. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is, of course, a, a hot debate right now. And it shows up most in terms of universities. What should universities be supporting? And our tax dollars, what do we want the National Science Foundation to be funding? Do we want them to be funding pure, what's now called basic research, or do we want them? What's interesting is that this word sacrifice could go both ways, in the sense that it could just mean an exchange, where it looks like you're doing something for pure knowledge, but your idea is that somewhere 
sometime down the road, you'll get something back for it. You'll get some glory or some payback of some exactly, kind. Exactly, exactly. And this is definitely operative when we when we talk about the National Science Foundation. We say, well, we fund basic research because who knows, 100 years from now, it may turn out that this is a life-saving therapy that we didn't understand, or it may revolutionize education in some way we don't understand, something like this. So part of this was you sacrifice yourself for some future reward that you couldn't quite see. But other people vehemently disagreed. And they said, if you get something back, then it's no sacrifice at all. Then you're not making a gift. You're just trying to calculate your exchange. Uh, one person, for instance, described the process of science very proudly as like chasing after the foot of the rainbow, knowing that you never get there. And the beauty of it was that you never get there, that it's ultimately doomed to failure. And that's what was special about science. That's what made it not like everything else. One of the great champions of this was Henry Rowland. Yes. Tell us about him. Henry Rowland was a physicist, arguably one of the most important American physicists of the 19th century. Um, he worked at Johns Hopkins for much of his career. And he wrote a very famous essay called A Plea for Pure Science, which was hotly discussed at the time. His colleagues just swarmed to this idea and said that the the thing that was making science unique in this period uh, after the Civil War where capitalism was starting to take over most everything um, was that it was not about making money. It was not about um, trying to get something back. Of course, this is, has very little to do with how we tend to think about science now, which is much more about, um, about generating products that we can use. Yeah, I have a copy of Roland's uh, address here in which he says, Above all, we wish to see that high and chivalrous spirit which causes one to pursue his idea in spite of all difficulties, to work at the problems of nature with the approval of his own conscience and not of men before him. Let him fit himself for the struggle with all the weapons which mathematics and the experience of those gone before him can furnish, and let him enter the arena with the fixed and stern purpose to conquer." Let him not be contented to stand back with the crowd of mediocrity, but let him press forward for a front place in the strife. Yes. He delivered that in front of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Uh, but what, when you hear it, it sounds like a sermon. Um, it's fiery. It's impassioned. He was the alleged descendant of Jonathan Edwards, you know, our most famous um, Fire and brimstone uh, our most theologian. Famous fire and brimstone theologian, and I think he's even if he wasn't actually related to him, he definitely picks up some of that, some of that tone. Um, it's also pretty clear. This is 1883, so it's it's just in the period where the Civil War and the horrific violence of that could be a little bit nostalgic at this time. So that idea of taking up weapons wasn't just going to put off his listeners, but might actually rally them, um, inspire them, infuse them with the spirit. Now. I guess it could be said that whenever anybody wanted to sound sort of lofty, they'd reach for either the rhetoric of war, which we still do mm -hmm. when we say war on cancer or right. you know, war on poverty, or the rhetoric of religion. Were these just figures of speech? Was this just, um, you know, unfortunately, a cliched way of making anything sound important? Or was it more than that? It's a great question. Uh, well, in some way, I think what's interesting is that what makes... The fact that they're using this in science, interesting, is that we tend to hold out science as precisely that realm where things like politics and religion don't touch. So the very idea that we're making science in this big S abstract way into its own entity by sacralizing it and by militarizing it um, makes it interesting that now we treat science as valuable and precious precisely because it's separate from politics or religion. And I think going back to this period of its emergence starts to beg the question about just how separate from military principles and religious principles it really is. Well, if there's one field of science in that period, again, the, uh, the late 19th century, early 20th century, that rings with the kind of religious language of martyrdom it's what was called rentgenology. This was the term at the time for what we now think of as radiology, the study of radiation and x-rays, named after Wilhelm Rentgen, the physicist. And this field was full of people subjecting themselves to sort of mind-boggling torture. <laughs> <laughs> tell, me, 
Tell me a few stories from the field of rentgenology. Okay. So the the x-ray was discovered. It wasn't invented. The rentgen just happened to bump into it one afternoon when he was messing around with this stuff um, in 1895. And uh, because there were so many people who were doing electrical experimentation at the time, as soon as his paper was published, people started experimenting with it, including in the U.S. Um, and it took off like wildfire. Now, we would think that, well, all these early experimenters just didn't understand what x-rays could do to you, and so this is all that happened. That's certainly true for the for the early part. But the first uh, American known to die from overexposure to x-rays was already in 1904, um, that early, you know, so not even 10 years after the after the first and they already knew publication. they already knew that exposure to x-rays caused these radiation burns they'd experienced that exactly. very quickly exactly within months um within months. there were and uh, articles were being published in the first months of uh, 1896 talking about all your hair falling out and these burns that showed up on the skin and so on so a lot of these early rentgenologists understood that there would be a problem and thought that it was valuable to continue their research precisely because it was so dangerous. And they described themselves as willing um, willing martyrs. Martyr was the word they used. X-ray martyrs. X-ray martyrs. In fact, uh, Percy Brown, one of the most important early American uh, rhinconologists, wrote a book called American Martyrs to the X-ray, uh, published in 1930, that detailed each of these bio- biographies of the the men and women, one woman who had died from doing this work in loving detail, um, and monuments were erected to them, just like to war dead and so on. Let's uh, let's give listeners a taste of what they were doing to themselves. There was Charles Lester Leonard, who, due to exposure to radiation, had to first amputate his finger, then his entire hand, then his arm. But this, you write, only increased his fascination with X-rays. And then there was Walter Dodd who underwent 50 operations under ether. Yes, exactly. I have, a, I have a picture of a man just being slowly whittled away, chunks of flesh being taken off yes. um, year by year. And yet, you write, he was ever more enthusiastically absorbed in his task. Well, and some of them published essays on the dangerous effects of the x-rays. One named uh, Maran Kasabian published a, an essay called The X-ray as an Irritant, in which he went through exactly what it would do to the skin and at what rates and so on, and continued researching 10 years after um, publishing they'd, that essay. They'd, they'd have limbs amputated. They had these terrible burns. They'd go blind. They'd die. Yes. And uh, tell me what happened when a bunch of these rentgenologists, these radiologists, got together for a professional meeting in 1920. Yes, yes. They were all seated for dinner at this you know, gala affair, and they were served chicken. And it was um, uh, so many of them had already had one hand amputated at that point because that was the one they tended to hold under the ray that they couldn't cut the meat that they were served. And it was um, uh, surely an awkward and, and painful moment. And yet at the same time, there's some way in which they understood themselves as brethren, to use the religious term, because they were all missing a hand in the same way that we might mark ourselves um, with stigma in entering a religious order now, shaving the head or something like this. So there was some way in which these injuries bound them together as a collective, made them a profession, a, a group in a way that they weren't before, all dedicated to the cause of science. You use the term stigmata, and um, Walter Dodd was called a Rentgen saint by someone. Yes, yes. It was very early on people were talking about the x-ray as a religious force. Um, In fact, one of the uh, early researchers um, uh, wrote to a colleague who was who was doing this work in 1896, asking him um, maybe his good New England Congregationalist could get up a new theory of hell in which the quivering flesh shall be scorched through and through with these rays which blast and wither but don't consume. So that this, people were fairly clear early on that this was um, an inexplicable and and uh, uh, tremendous force. Um, and then they behaved toward it in a way in which I think their religious training had had trained them to like, behave toward it. Like yeah. Job. Yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, Rebecca, I think you've established pretty clearly that there was a lot of suffering for science going on during this period, and that it was intentional, that it was actually, in some ways, part of the um, part of the allure of science at the time, this kind of noble, yes. this kind of noble struggle that people were engaged in. Yeah. Now, now, you make the point in your book 
suffering for science, that you had to be a certain kind of person to sacrifice yourself in the first place. Not everybody could do that. Right, right. It all comes down to this idea of self-sacrifice. Um, sacrifice is, of course, a very ancient idea. You know, you can go all the way back to Abraham and Isaac, of course, for this idea. But uh, self-sacrifice, interestingly, wasn't a term in use before the 19th century. The first one that the Oxford English Dictionary gives us is 1805 um, with Wordsworth's Ode to Duty. And it was not widespread um, until later in the 19th century. And why that idea of self-sacrifice matters is that you need a self before you can sacrifice it. You have to have a whole thing there before you can forfeit it. And in the 19th century, not every individual was considered a whole self. Um, most obviously, uh, African-American enslaved people were not considered full selves. They didn't have the full capacities of selfhood. So that the, uh, the, the unbelievable hardship of slavery was not accorded the same kind of um valor and 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 nobility that the sort of voluntary suffering that these scientists went through exactly was. it all it all hinged on that idea of voluntariness um, and to do something voluntarily meant you had to have full command of yourself in order to choose to suffer in this way so people who weren't thought to be fully in command of themselves uh, wives would fall into this category because they were uh, submitted to the will of their husband by law wage uh, laborers wage laborers exactly I mean you know coal miners and railroad workers and on and on were dying in droves, but exactly. they weren't party to this grand calling. Exactly, exactly. And when you think about it with the case of Rentgenology, it becomes very interesting because this, these dozens of experimenters who uh, suffered uh, these injuries and death as a result of this were recalled as martyrs to science in newspaper articles, in memorial stones, and all these sorts of things. All the people who transported the uh, the glass plates on which X-rays were um, were made, uh, who stored later stored film in warehouses and suffered when those warehouses caught fire and so on, they were never recalled as martyrs. Um, nor were any of the wives, children of the experimenters, were frequently called to stick their hands under the X-ray and see what happened. The first essay. Rentkin published uh, on the x-ray contained a picture of his wife's hand. But none of those people are recalled as you, martyrs to the x-ray. You had to be a white guy of a certain social class to be a scientific martyr. Or in the rare case of um, someone like Marie Curie, Curie right. you could be a woman. Right, That's right, pretty rare. Right. You had to be in possession of a certain kind of self. Um, and that it wasn't up to you entirely whether you possessed uh, the self of that kind. It was a socially determined kind of category. Was self-ownership sort of a precondition? Did you have to be someone who, you know, according to societal standards, owned yourself, had complete control of yourself in order to sacrifice? Or was the sacrifice a way of asserting power over yourself, self-mastery? Yes, you know? absolutely. I, I, it's a terrific question. And it's more the, it's more the latter, uh, that it was partly in the act of self-sacrificing that you demonstrated uh, your command. It was the the testament to how much um, will you had. Now, men have been asserting their masculinity by by becoming uh, fallen heroes for a long time. You know, in that very era we're talking about, yep. the Red Badge of Courage yep. by Stephen Crane. Yep. Is this just a new version of that idea of... Uh, of the self-sacrificing hero? In some ways it is, and what's what's new about it is this is the period now after the Civil War when the nation has come together as a nation after being split by sectionalism for so long. Uh, as the nation's trying to come together as a, as a single unit uh, and becomes, in the course of doing so, much more um, expansive, they start. Uh, pushing out their borders. The Spanish-American War eventually happens, um, the exploration of the Arctic, and so on, these sorts of early imperial projects in some way. I think then ideals of American masculinity shift as the nation becomes a nation in this sense, in a growing, expansive sense. What it means to be an American man becomes something quite different, um, especially what it means to be a white American man at this period. Um, it's also worth noting that 
this is a period in which uh, the American economy is shifting very rapidly. It's We're urbanizing as a nation. Um, we're becoming much more industrial manufacturing based rather than uh, agriculturally based. So old forms of uh, self-control that people had by growing their own food, by being responsible for their own local economies in their small towns or in their families, were being broken up. Um, and they're become everyone, um, men, women, black, white, and so on, are becoming much more beholden to systems that are bigger than they are. And I think it's in the context of feeling out of control by being submissive to these bigger systems, that the appeal of thinking you can dedicate yourself to something you believe in becomes that much more uh, salient. There's also a worry uh, that crops up in a lot of the documents you quote in your book about the American man getting soft, yes. effeminate, yes. mediocre. Is, uh, is this idea of the noble self-sacrificing scientist a, a way of reinvigorating the ideals of manly undertaking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially for these desk bound guys. Yes, absolutely. And they were they were very explicit about this. That uh that these new bureaucrats, you know, they'd left the farm and now they're working in you know, the early precursors of the cubicle, right? Are are becoming uh flaccid in various ways, intellectually, um physically in all these in all these senses. And that testing your metal um by uh by really pushing it all out there was was a way to reassert and reinvigorate uh, American manhood. What's interesting is this has nothing in common with the image of the scientists we now think of. I sometimes ask my, my students to draw the stereotypical picture of a scientist, and it's always the same. It's always um, somebody with hair sort of like Einstein's, you know, all over the place, a very mad scientist sort of figure, but um, but emaciated, white-coated, uh, stuck in a lab, all these kinds of things. There's nothing virile or uh, aggressive or imperialistic at all about this picture of the scientist. Um, but at the time uh, that the scientific professions were being organized, they were definitely pushing a, a different kind of image of of manhood. Soldiers for Soldierly science. metal, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the one thing in common is I think your your students' um, caricature does imply some amount of hard work and discipline. Yes. Now, in your book you say, however, that this whole period of several decades, end of the 19th century, early 20th century, when when science was seen as, 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 the, um, as the field of, of guys who were willing to literally kill themselves for their subject, started to wane by, yes. like, the 1920s, and yeah. you start to see people making fun yes. of the suffering scientists? Yes, yes, yes. And and the whole number of articles start showing up then called things um, scientists at play, um, the fun of being a scientist. You see little parodies written about this idea of suffering too much. Um, and it still remains, it can be something of a joke. Now, there's this mad scientist figure who shows up in movies like Back to the Future, you know, where they're just a little bit crazy, these people who stay in the lab too long. Um, we also have an idea that science is fun. We have Bill Nye the Science Guy. Yes. And lots of other ways of describing science. And we have a lot of scientists who, who, who really are fun-loving and get joy from their profession. When did that become a dominant uh, image of the scientist? Well, it it splinters and varies in different scientific professions over the 20th century and at different moments. So it's sometimes physics, for instance, is there's a big push to describe physics as fun, as a as masculine in a particular way, but in terms of boyishness. Um, yeah, we have Richard, Richard Feynman, Feynman exactly. and his bongos. Yes, exactly. Yes. And he becomes a sort of epitome of the, the, boyish, um, the boyish scientist. It's just as manly as it ever was, but now a different kind. It's not the... Um, the gruff soldier. It's the um, Peter Pan kind of figure instead. Uh, so it, it varies a little bit from scientific field to scientific field. And indeed, you still hear the same concerns now. This shows up a lot in um, biology, especially now that as more and more women come into some fields of scientists, scientists, especially the life sciences, there's a discussion of um, these fields getting soft. Um, and there are jokes or criticisms about whether we're dumbing down the science or making it flaccid in some ways by by taking out some of the suffering. Mm. I guess there are still echoes of the idea that science requires sacrifice in a lot of different places, including that um, infamous speech made by uh, Lawrence Summers, president of Harvard University a couple of years ago, where he was looking at... Um, 
gender disparities in science and engineering fields, the fact that they're dominated by men. And he explained that. How exactly? Well, it's so curious. The, the most widely discussed aspect of that speech was he suggested that there might be differing aptitudes um, at the highest levels of science. And he talked about behavioral genetics and new research showing that there might be some innate uh, differences and in uh, intellectual ability, which is what most people jumped on. But if you go back to the speech, what's fascinating about that is his first explanation for these differing levels of men and women at the highest ranks of science was that uh, the scientific professions at the highest end require this sort of total commitment. That was his word. Uh, and that the the truth of it, he said, was that women aren't prepared to offer those kinds of total commitments. Um and he said there are a lot of reasons this could be so, and we'd want to study what those reasons were. But we tended to ignore in all the hubbub about that speech that his first explanation was actually something about uh, who's willing to suffer for science. Do you see in our present day life um, any field of endeavor that is is using this particular spin uh, about sacrifice and uh and suffering and deprivation in the way that science did in the period you studied. Well, I uh, the most obvious of of course is the is the war, uh, but I think we still see it uh, quite a bit today in science. I, I see it all the time in colleges and universities. There's an implicit idea, and I wish it were made more explicit so that we could actually have open debate about it in terms of what kinds of suffering we think are inevitable, what kinds of suffering we think are appropriate, and what kinds of suffering do we think are valuable. It shows up all the time in debates over education. We think kids should be made to do things that are um, uncomfortable. Kids should be made to do things that might even be excruciating because that's what uh, makes progress and so on. And it isn't that I think things should be about ease and pleasure and merriment instead because that uh, can be equally dangerous, I think, and equally um, exclusive to say only fun is allowed here. It, it's very troubling. I can give an example. I grew up in California and went uh, to college in California, and I always found it a trouble here in Santa Cruz that if you weren't out surfing and goofing off, something must be wrong with you. And as somebody who wanted to be in the library, I would just sort of, when someone asked me how I spent my Thursday night, I I I would sort of mumble so I didn't have to say I was in the library because the correct answer here was to say I was out surfing, I was out drinking beer, this kind of thing. And I was so interested and shocked when I moved to Cambridge to go to graduate school that the norm was exactly the opposite. That if you didn't say, oh, I stayed all night in the library, I never ate, I haven't slept in four days, I've been burning the candle at both ends, um, that something was wrong with you. And in fact, people who had spent the previous day canoeing or sleeping or something would say, oh, I was working and I was and so it was fairly evident to me right away that in both cases people might be doing the same activities but the social pressure to describe oneself either as suffering quite terribly or as enjoying oneself no end were, were equally strong um, just totally different and I started realizing that there was no necessary way. It had to be one way or the other, that these were just social norms and they must have come from somewhere. And I started getting interested in where those those ideals were coming from and how they got perpetuated. How did you first come upon this subject? How did you decide to study this? Uh, well, I was I was at MIT as a graduate student, and I was doing some research on uh, this very obscure use of x-rays um, in which women would submit themselves to prolonged periods of, of radiation in order uh, to remove their hair for cosmetic reasons. Uh, and they were doing it in the name of beauty. Um, and as you might imagine, they suffered all kinds of horrible consequences from this. All kinds when was of, this? This was, it actually went on for 50 years from 1896 into the 1940s. And, uh, Hundreds of thousands of American women did this in commercial x-ray salons. Um, this will be the subject of my next book, actually. <laughs> but, but they Suffering uh, for beauty. Suffering for beauty. But they. Uh, what was interesting to me about this is as medical journals started carrying accounts of this in order to try to squash the practice because women were dying, uh, they would occasionally be printed right next to an article in which one of these early rentgenologists 
who had submitted himself to x-radiation in the name of truth would be printing a description that was all laudatory and heroic and all these kinds of things. And the women were being described as vain or stupid or ignorant and so on. And the, and the x-ray experimenters were uniformly described as noble, as valiant, as uh, courageous, as brilliant, as this kind of thing. And it was impossible to miss that these were essentially identical practices, two individuals putting some part of their body under a ray in the name of some larger purpose. Beauty on the one hand, and its most abstract truth on the other hand, and its most abstract. But both both called to do so by society. Exactly. A sense of duty compelled both sides. Exactly, yeah. exactly. A sense of compulsion exactly. that they couldn't not do it. Um, and I got interested in this and the kind of obvious discrepancy in how these things were being interpreted. At the same time, I'm walking around MIT as a graduate student. MIT, is probably knows famous for suicides among its undergraduates and graduate students. Um, and there were people jumping off the tops of buildings with alarming regularity while I was there. And when I asked the people I met there, well, why, why would it be so tough? Why would so many people be having such a difficult time? The answer was always, that's just what you have to do for science. Uh, science requires this kind of sacrifice. It was astonishing the way that... Uh, there was no human agency at all. It was just science who forced us into these kinds of positions. And there was something so resonant between these 1920s era physicians talking about the sacrifice for science and these 1990s era scientists talking about the inescapability of suffering um, that I wanted to try to connect the dots. How did we get... Uh, how did we get here, was the question. Why did we start to say that you have to suffer for science? Um, did you suffer for this book, <laughs> Suffering for Science? Oh, it's a tough question. I, well, historians definitely have their own ideals of suffering, um, of suffering for knowledge. And interestingly, they come out of a lot of the same places that these ideals of suffering for science come from. In fact, History in the late 19th century was considered a science, just right alongside chemistry or physics. Um, and there's a whole tradition in German historiography where we get a lot of these ideas about suffering. Um, the country that gave us the sorrows of young worker, <laughs> you know, other romantic images of suffering. Exactly. Yeah. Very prominent. Um, that the proper historian must have Zitzfleisch, which is just a, a terrible word, but this idea that you that you can just sit and endure um, uh, What's an it, it archival... something flesh? Yes, yes, exactly. The ability to sit on one's flesh, assiduousness. Um, and, uh, and that is what it takes. I mean, you have to go down in the basement of these archives and just sit there and pour through the dusty stacks of things. Um, uh, and I have to say, I did a lot of this research before uh, a lot of these earlier sources were digitized. Now you can click with a touch of the button. You don't even have to travel. You can get it all on your desktop computer. Um, so times have changed. But uh, I don't know. I I could say I suffered, uh, and I did, but I also don't want to reinvigorate the valorization of suffering for knowledge that I, I was trying to write about in the book. And I was very aware while I was writing that that was happening all around me. Once I was at a research institute in Cambridge where I was f finishing the early research for this book, and I, as I was leaving at 8.30 one night, which to me felt far too late, I thought, I haven't seen my friends in weeks, I didn't get a proper meal tonight, this is terrible, I'm going on a walk, I'm leaving. Um, as I was heading out, I passed a colleague who was heading in, and he held up a little tiny paper bag and pointed to it. And I said, what's what's that? He was obviously trying to get me to ask. And he said, that's dinner. Well, and it was tiny, so it didn't look like it could hold a whole meal. And I said, what is it? And he said, uh, a pack of gum and a bottle of ibuprofen. And he he waved it like a trophy as he went by. Um, and I, of course, went out very sheepish, thinking I'm not a real historian. I'm leaving at 8.30 so I can get a, a real meal rather than just a pack of gum. And if I were a serious scholar, I would come back. So um, I suffered, but not as much as, as some. Um, and, of course, it's all relative, isn't it? So I think I was very aware while I was writing all the other people's labor who made my choice to suffer 
possible. Well, Rebecca Herzig, it has been a pleasure. No, it has been uplifting and noble <laughs> to talk to you today. Thank you, Robert. It was great to be here. Rebecca Herzig is a professor of women and gender studies at Bates College. This is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Robert Polly. Well, as we said earlier, science may once have been sold as risky and courageous, on par with soldierly combat, but that changed. And today, its big selling point is that it's fun, fun, fun. Coming up, a conversation I had a couple of years ago with someone who knows science from both sides. The writer and performer Sandra Singh Lowe is the voice behind the lowdown on science, the weekly radio spot that airs daily on this and other public radio stations. And while it plays up the funny side of science, Sandra Singh Lowe also knows what it's like to suffer for the discipline. Well, Sandra, hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm great, I'm great. Um, well, if our listeners know you, and I suspect they do, they probably think of you as that um, that funny lady who who did the memorable uh, pieces on This American Life. Yes. About your childhood. Yes. Growing up, your father. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, and who also does these radio commentaries for, say, Marketplace. Yep. That's the lowdown. Yes. And then there's the low life, which is another set of commentaries you do for... On KPCC in Los Angeles. But um, they probably won't think of science. They may not, no. So what is this about extending the, the low franchise to, to science commentaries? <laughs> well, I actually went to college for 10 years and actually don't really, did not really end up with that many degrees by the end. I finally yanked myself out of college because I was clearly just going to be there forever and ever, and I needed to, to grow up and get a real job. Now, you're talking about undergraduate for 10 years? You no, know, I, I popped out of the undergraduate in four years, which was unusual. Uh-huh. I, I made it out in four years, but I sort of lingered, and I got it my undergraduate degree in physics. Actually, it was a physics-slash-literature double major, because I thought that was a cool double major, at Caltech. And I sort of majored in physics because it was my worst subject in school. So I thought, then if I major in it, I'll really be a Renaissance woman. No one can accuse me of not being good at physics because I majored in it. See? However, I was, the moment that I, and my math scores were, you know, I kind of peaked at about, 17, 18. Well, you got into Caltech. Your math scores must have been great. Exactly. So by the first year in calculus, I was rocking. But the second year, it all fell apart. Green's theorem, complex, integral. Yes, I can remember the moment it started drifting from me, which was about when I walked onto the Caltech campus. So I was kind of like that character in Flowers for Algernon, if you remember that story, <laughs> who suddenly is like genius and then they lose it all. Yes, That's yes. kind of been me. So like ever since in my entire life, I've been looking to recapture that glamour. This is your way of getting back in the game. It's my way of getting back in the game. But the fact is, since I actually hold that degree, that kind of made me... Uh, you know, eligible to host a science show from Caltech on it. But I, I think they always feel at Caltech, and they're very smart there, that sometimes scientists can seem so, you know, cerebral and scientific. And since my father was a scientist, he's retired now, an excitable Chinese scientist from Shanghai who would sit you down at the dinner table after dinner and terrify you with wild and exciting diagrams that only he could understand. And he had about 60 seconds of patience when you say, don't you see how the ion goes under the negatively charged particle and blah, 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 and you don't know. And then he would start shouting, immediately go from this kind of oily beneficence to, to excitable shouting, almost half in Chinese. So that's kind of, that's a typical scientist for you, and they wanted to humanize science, so... That's why I narrate that. So, so, so they took the half of you that is the performer and literature major and married it to the half that is yes. the former physics <laughs> major and yes. c- created the lowdown on science. They did, indeed. And, and how, they're great because they're only about one minute, you know, I think of 70 or 80 seconds. I forget how long they are. I think 90 cases. seconds, 90 seconds. 90 seconds. So yeah. you get enough so that you get a factoid that you'll remember. We have time for a joke. So it's kind of like your one-a-day science vitamin. Right, right. And a lot of these are uh, fall into the category of isn't uh, isn't nature awesome, wonderful? Or isn't nature disgusting? Yes. And yes, that's really what you wanted to say. You were trying to be nice. <laughs> isn't nature Yes. Well, I was noticing uh, a theme. I've got the um I've got the CD that that collects maybe 20 of these. Yeah. And uh, as I was going through them, I'm I'm looking at the themes. Penguin poop, caterpillar vomit, llama droppings, rat sperm. Um they all have real science under them. They're not just gross subjects. But they're using grossness as a hook, right? It turns out, 
for some reason, turds are really interesting. Kind of turds make the whole biological world go, you know, ingesting and pooping out the rear. And sometimes that poop sticks around for a long time and becomes a piece of history. So it turns out there's a lot of, yeah, that, yeah, there's a lot of that. And, and even at one point, I don't, I, I don't know if that's on there. It may not be, but there, even one time where I go, oh, please, we're, like whale farts. <laughs> Do whale farts smell? And we're going, no, that's too much. But in fact, sometimes children listen along to these, and those are really the ones they want to know. Like, do whale farts smell? And it turns out, really bad. Someone's checked this out. They did. Well, before we get too deep into the conversation, let's, let's just play an example of the lowdown on science. And this is the aforementioned uh, vomiting caterpillars. Ah, the caterpillar. So colorful, so small, so defenseless. Except for the barf. This is Sandwiching Low with the lowdown on science and a cautionary tale about harassing caterpillars. Naturalists have known for a hundred years that when caterpillars are threatened, they make a bizarre clicking noise. Carleton University neuroethologist Jane Yak was curious exactly how the bugs make the sound. So she did what any self-respecting neuroethologist would do. She turned a video camera on some caterpillars and threatened them with pecking baby chicks. As the chicks pecked, the caterpillars began to click. The more the chicks pecked, the more the caterpillars freaked and the quicker the clicking became. Did Dr. Seuss write this? Anyway, videotape revealed that the sound originated from the caterpillars scraping mandibles. Jane Yak got her answer, but was in for a surprise. As the chicks kept pecking, the frantic caterpillars, as a last line of defense, puked up a disgusting, sticky brown liquidy spew and used their heads to wipe the vomit on the chicks' beaks. Proving once again that... Nature is weird. That's all we have to say. Weird. That was an example of the lowdown on science, which is uh, co-produced by Caltech and KPCC Los Angeles, and is now playing on KUSP um, during both Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Um, and I love KUSP, by the way. I, I, I have spent a fair amount of time in Northern California, and I have so many happy memories of driving along a foggy coaster, you know, and, and just listening. I, I love your radio station. I do. Um, I want to uh, reassure people that not all of the lowdowns on science um, are, are gross. Absolutely. There's a lot of other things as well. Yeah, we do like cosmic hiss on the radio. There's some physical ones that we have too, and invent new inventions. There are a lot of interesting inventions that we talk about. So yes, but I I, I don't want to go back to the gross part. But those are the memorable ones. Yeah. So they, I guess we were trying to segue into ones that are not gross, and here I go into one that's gross. Well, that's okay. That's but, okay. But they're so interesting. Of you know biofuel, and there are a couple of guys who are sailing around the world on a boat, completely. Um, fueled on biofuel, including human fat, and to prove that, to show how it could be, they actually all got liposuction, and then put their fat into the boat, so instead of the love boat, we have the love handle boat, you know, so the, I guess the memorable ones are kind of gross, but what can you, it's, it's science. <laughs> oh, I remember a New Yorker cartoon that showed um, a liposuction clinic, and outside of it, a large tanker truck with a, a hose attached to the, uh, to the building. <laughs> Which is, I mean, it, it does raise the question, what do they do with that fat? It does raise it, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> it does. And they can power boats. It can power, but it totally can. Well, there's the solution to two huge world problems right there. Huge. Yeah. Exactly. Um, do you keep up on science? Is it something you still go back to? I don't, yeah, I, I, I do not. It, I, well, let's see. I, <laughs> I will, here's what I do. It's like, if it comes across my radar, like in an invention or something along those lines, um, I will see it. My father, who is an 86-year-old Chinese man, he's the one who is always phoning in updates. Of st and, and he goes still to UCLA lectures, which he sometimes sleeps through, sometimes is awake through. But, you know, God bless him, he's 86. And when the, when the Nobel Prizes roll around, like in our household, it's, more, it's bigger than the Oscars when, like, the Nobel Prizes and physics are announced. And it's, like, and it's usually a scandal because he really feels that the Nobel Prize winners, and I'm going to talk to David H. Pollitzer, I think, in two months at Caltech, which is, uh, and he won the Nobel Prize in physics uh, two or three years ago. 
And so my father's always scandalized because, you know, really their groundbreaking work was 15 years ago. And then they just got it for this recent work, which is not at all as groundbreaking, but they felt they had to. It's like the whole Helen Mirren, Judy mm-hmm. Dench kind mm-hmm. of like, mm-hmm. really, they should have gotten it from the, for that work they did 20 years ago. So it's always a very big scandal. Mm-hmm. So keeping up with my dad is really enough. For me, I think. Well, I'm glad you mentioned your dad, because I I just uh, couldn't resist bringing him up myself. First of all, I want to play you a little clip from something you said, oh gosh, 10 or so years ago. I insist that this be the last radio commentary about my father. I just don't want this to become a habit. (laughs) So you've gone back on that I don't know how many times. Well, you know, it's your bre- if it's your bread and butter, or I like to say, yeah, he's the yeah, he's the virus. I'm just his human host. Um, yeah, if it's if the work is, you know, if if the firewood is lying there on the ground, you just have to gather it. So low hanging fruit. Low hanging fruit. Yeah. Oh, oh, these low puns are just unbelievable. Yes, they are. Um, your father, known I think to, to to many in the world as Mister Low. Yes. Um, you've told stories about him for years, and. Uh, I'll never forget them, partly because they remind me a little bit of my father, sure, who was a um, psychologist and university professor who was not quite as tight-fisted as your father, but nonetheless, he would embarrass my sister and I by going out with like jeans that were torn across the seat, you know, <laughs> uh, because he didn't want to buy a new pair. Yes. And your father would uh, wear out sweaters until the elbows were worn through and then turn them backwards. Why not? You're still mostly covered. And uh, used a, a paper bag instead of a briefcase at his engineering job. Yes. And uh, denied you and your sibling. How many siblings do you have? Two, a brother and a sister. Brother and a sister denied you and your siblings even the most basic sort of uh, luxuries. Yeah, including Christmas. <laughs> Christmas is a waste. <laughs> It's a waste. And I understand that he, you know, he was a Caltech grad also. Yes. Trained in? A couple of different degrees. They had things at the time like applied physics and metallurgy, and, and, and he went to Stanford and Purdue as well. So he just had a spray of degrees and various things. But I guess he was appalled when you decided to take that physics degree and not go into physics, instead turn toward the arts? Yeah, he really felt that if you didn't major and you know, get an engineering degree and become an engineer, you would... Starve on the street. He was one of those Asian fathers who felt like liberal arts is a complete waste of time. And um, have I proven him wrong? I'm not really sure. And yet he's the one who at 86, and I I know this because I do listen to your commentaries um, on your life, um, the low life. um, He's the one who's dumpster diving. He's totally dumpster diving. He (laughs) loves it. Speaking of science, he has his own thing of science. And I think he, and, and of course, it's really driving along with him is amazing. He has taken dumpster diving. It's not just like, you know, what might you dumpster dive? A watermelon whose skin has not been, you know, a whole melon that you would cut into. That's one thing. But the second category is like tuna wraps and chicken wraps. That's kind of more dubious. Or, you know, then you have even sushi. Because they dumpster dive in Malibu, which is really the quality dumpster diving. It's really the elite dumpster diving, where somehow it's a low-fat chicken (laughs) flatbread tortilla. It's (laughs) it's low-fat dumpster diving. And the smell of mold will overtake you. That's the good thing about getting old. When I eat moldy food, it's better for my regularity. So you wonder why the science things are gross. I'm sorry that this has turned into just a completely gross discussion of grossness, <laughs> but there you go. But apparently, yes, for him, it, it moves things along. The mold is actually good for him at this point. Just good because he doesn't have any teeth remaining. But, but I realized at some point that probably he would have been a good street performer or busker because, you know, he hitchhikes and then entertains his driver and the other passengers. So probably he's really the original performance artist. And he had to go in science to support a family of five, so he feels perhaps everyone else should too. And he, aside from his daughter's fame, he he, he has his own kind of um, fame in, in Malibu for having um, oh exercise, shall we say? Yes, the naked handstand man. Naked handstand man. This is something he did on the beach, or still does? Yes, the 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 they'll be flying. The family jewels will be flying. <laughs> yeah, because he feels like uh, you know it's it, you know exercising naked is so good for the body, you know, maybe not for your children. So, yeah, the handstands, and, and in the shower, I'll do a handstand in the shower. Don't quite know why, but um, there you go. And, and, I, and I notice on your website there is a um, photograph of your father. He's in a uh, Speedo uh, on a chin-up bar, and he looks like the picture of health. <laughs> no, I'm serious. He is. He He's amazingly sinewy, and I think because he only eats, yeah, rotted food and usually rotted vegetables. 
so um, yeah, he's and he swims in. He goes on the, to the beach every day. He swims in the Pacific Ocean in in degrees that other people who are like a mere you know thirty two years old wouldn't even go in without a wetsuit. So he just keeps moving along. He is a specimen. He is absolutely a specimen. <laughs> Good for <word for> it. <laughs> The writer, storyteller, and radio commentator, Sandra Tsing-Lo. That's from a conversation recorded in 2008. I'm Robert Polly, and that wraps it for this edition of the 7th Avenue Project. Please tune in next week when we'll be back with more. And in the meantime, you can visit our website at 7thAvenueProject.com for audio and information on past shows. (laughs) ¶¶